together to the book of Genesis. This morning we will be looking at chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. If you would please give attention to the reading of the Word of God. The Word of God is living and powerful. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. And it is authoritative. Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived for 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. When Seth had lived for 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh for 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived for 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan for 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived for 70 years, he fathered Mahalil. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalil for 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years. And he died. When Mahalil had lived for 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalil lived after he fathered Jared for 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalil were not 895 years. And he died. When Jared had lived for 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he had fathered Enoch for 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived for 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived for 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech for 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years. And he died. When Lamech had lived for 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from, from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. 
Lamech lived after he fathered Noah for 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use this word, that you would bind it tightly about our heart and our mind, that we, O Lord, would believe what you have said, that we would obey what you have said, and that through that, O Lord, we would have life. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've come in our study of Genesis to Genesis chapter 5. And as I read it, perhaps you said to yourself, why do we even read genealogies? I know they need to be in the Bible there so we know who's the father of whom. But those are the toughest parts of my yearly Bible reading. Even more so, why would anyone in the world want to preach on a genealogy? And if it doesn't go to the height of it, why would anyone want to preach on Easter on a genealogy? Well, the short answer is Genesis 5 comes after Genesis 4, which is where we were. But the longer answer is that every part of the Scripture, even the genealogies, and I think we'll find today, especially this genealogy, teaches us the great truth of how God has conquered death in Jesus Christ. Perhaps you noticed that refrain that we will look at a bit more in depth over and over and over again, and he died. We're going to see that the result of the fall is death. But the work of God in Jesus Christ is to conquer death. We'll see that by looking at three things this morning. The first thing we will do is set ourselves up by looking at life after the fall. Life as a result of sin and the fall. And then secondly, we will look a bit at this refrain of death that goes on and on and on through the ages. And then finally, we will see the hope that comes in the defeat of death. Life after the fall, a refrain of death, and hope in the defeat of death. Let's begin then by looking at life after the fall. Life after the fall still continued in some form of blessing from the Lord. You see, we must be reminded as we complain about our work, tests at school, not having the latest cell phone, not getting the greatest gas mileage, having backaches, foot aches, not being able to do this, not being able to do that, we need to understand that we are not in a place where it is as bad as it could be. No, more than that, we're not even in a place that we deserve. We have so many untold blessings that the Lord continues to shower upon us even in the face of sin. And this is true here in this passage, fresh on the heels of the fall, of rebellion against the Lord, of A sin that not only affected Adam, but his whole progeny and had ruined 
marred the world that God had created very good. And God still showers His blessings on His people. They have a long life. These ages are so long that they're fantastical. They're almost unbelievable. Who lives 962 years? Who lives 777 years? That's four, five times as long as our country has been around. Who lives that long? But you see, this is a reminder of God's grace. Because God is still fulfilling His mandate to Adam. The reason they're living so long is the population must grow. If you do the math, and don't ask me to, Adam and his direct progeny, the patriarchs here, would have, by the time of the flood, have fathered somewhere between, depending on the estimates, tens of millions to a billion people. That happens when you're having kids for 700 years. And your kids have kids for 700 years. The population was just exploding. And this also allowed, these long lengths allowed them to pass on the word of God. You see, when someone like Enoch would wonder what life was like in the garden, he would go visit Adam. And Adam would tell him. When Noah was looking out at all of the wickedness that was around him, he would go back to Adam's grandson and say, what was life like back in your day when the world was but a few years old? You see, the truth of God's word was passed down from mouth to mouth as surely as it is for us through God's word. They were blessed with long life, but they were also blessed with relationships. Do you see that here in verse 1? God created man and he made him in the likeness of God. We are made in the image of God. And the Bible tells us that this continues to be true even after the great fall. Look around you. You don't just see people that are young or old in suits or dresses with glasses or not. There is a sense as we look around that we are looking at an image of God. Moral beings who have wills, who can love, who can hope. This is a great blessing that God has provided us and we need to be reminded of that every day, especially on days when we're focused on hope because the world can be a pretty hopeless place, can't it? They were made in the image of God, but perhaps even more importantly, they were known by God. You see that God created them male and female, and He blessed them and He named them. Just like Adam named the animals and took dominion, so God did with Adam and Eve. He named them that He might show His sovereign control over them, but also His involvement and relationship with them. They were not merely animals. Man is not simply a super-evolved animal. There is a stark difference. Adam names the animals. God names man. But there's also something we see from this genealogy, something that you all know and need to be reminded of. 
we are blessed with family relationships. Do you notice in this text that for the most part, all we know about these people is their family? What do we know about Jared? Tell me all about him, would you? How about Mahalio? He lived an awful long time, 830 years. What did he do? You see, God has not seen fit to record all of the varying details in their lives, but he has seen fit to record that they were a part of a family. They were a part of a godly line. They were a part of God's purpose in the world. You see, God works through families and by families, and God's relationship with us gives us meaning in our relationship with others. It all flows from this blessing of the Lord. But there is also, we see here in Life After the Fall, a purpose of the Lord. You'll note that this genealogy goes in one direction, forward. Now, this may not seem like much, but you have to understand that most ancient cultures, almost all of them, see history as being a cycle, a big circle, where things repeat themselves over and over and over and over again. And when you view life like that, there's very little meaning to life. Why should I do something? I'm just going to have to do it over again. But you see, for the Christian, for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, history is not a cycle of meaningless, repeated acts of faith. History is moving toward a point. History is a one-direction arrow in which God is working out His purpose, redeeming a people from sin, providing for them in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there will come a day when He will make all new when Jesus returns. This type of linear view of history is very important to remember because it was just, what, about 15 years ago that one of the most famous historians declared the end of history. It was all over. After all, what could there be after the Cold War? It's not like there'd be any more conflict, would there be? It's not like there'd be any more economic difficulties, would there be? It's not like there'd be any more sickness, would there? No. History will end when God says it ends. And this is a step in which he is preparing now, what is remembered about all of these people? Well, there are very brief outlines. All that is recounted of them is that they are in the line of Jesus Christ. How busy were you this week? How many essential things had to get done? How many things could never be paused for a moment for prayer or studying God's Word? All of the busyness of all of these men for all of these years, God's not interested in. What He's interested in is their hearts and their relationship to Him. Because God knows the truth of history. If I were to ask you, who is Julius Caesar? You would know. But how many of you could tell me in detail who Crassus was? Crassus was the most wealthy man in all of Rome, perhaps one of the ten wealthiest men in all of history. He was a partner with Julius Caesar. He actually, out of his own pocket, he opened up his wallet and hired an army to defeat, to defeat Spartacus. He's lost, for the most part, to history. 
I was just reading about a town, a man named General Wolf. How many of you know General Wolf? He was one of the greatest English conquerors of history. He conquered Quebec and made North America an English continent instead of a French one. It's lost to history. You see, as we think about our own lives, we must think that what we think is important cannot take precedence. We must focus on the Lord and what He has blessed us with and what He thinks is important. Our busyness does not matter in the grand scheme of things. That's not an excuse for laziness, but it's a calling to an eternal focus. Because you see, the one thing that we are told about all of these men over and over and over again is this refrain, and he died. We see this refrain of death that reminds us of the certainty of death. Here are men who lived incredibly long lives. Could you imagine in the cemetery east of Eden where Abel is buried and where there are no other deaths yet at 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, 100 years go by. Men live 100, 200, 300, 400 years and then something starts to happen. People may have been doubting that what God had said was true. They say, did God really mean it when he said, surely you will die? And then slowly, inexorably, God proved his point. And he died. And she died. And they died. It has been said with great truth that every time you see a hearse go by, you see God keeping his covenant. There is a great certainty about death. And there is something that we need to see in this. There is a a finality about death. You see, if we are not faced with the reminder of death, we tend to think that we are immortal. Young people... That is your problem. That's why you drive cars too fast. That's why you jump off cliffs. That's why you do every form of crazy thing that you do. And before your parents smile too much, they did it when they were your age. Because when you're young, you're not reminded. You don't see death. You don't feel the creaking of the bones. You don't get the cold that lasts three weeks. But you see... It is a good thing to be reminded of death because it points out to us that we are not immortal, that we have to beware the judgment of God, that there is a reckoning, that we cannot put this off. Death is certain. And death is also universal. Over and over and over again we hear this refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died. Why is it? Is it because they grew tired? Is it because they hadn't gotten the best of scientific vaccines yet? Is it because they had not developed the perfect educational system that would teach everyone not to be a bully and not to hit anyone and maybe hurt them and kill them? No. It's much simpler than that. They died because they were sinners. And that's bad news. 
because you are a sinner too. So am I. You can do the logic. They were sinners, therefore they died. I'm a sinner, therefore I will die. Even philosophers get that. All men are mortal. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. You see, death does not play favorites. It takes the young, the old, the healthy, the sick, the lonely, those surrounded with friends. Death is universal because death is a result not of what we do, but who we are. We are sinners. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5 verse 12. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, So death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Don't take comfort in the fact that you're a small sinner or that you would not have eaten the fruit God's word says that you are a sinner, I am a sinner, and because of that, death has spread to all of us. There is no escape from death. Death is certain. Death is universal. But we have to also understand that death is painful. Imagine that you are Adam. And you have disobeyed the Lord. And as a result, you watch your firstborn son kill your second son. Then you watch your firstborn son be banished. Then you begin to watch as your firstborn son's children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren begin to sin exceedingly. They destroy marriage. Violence is everywhere. And then even the children of the godly line have children and grandchildren. And they begin to sin. Because if you are Adam, you are living but generation from the flood. And you remember what caused the flood? God said life is so wicked. Everyone is so wicked. I will wipe out everyone but eight people. Imagine the heartache that Adam would have. But you see, that kind of heartache passes on to us too because the longer we live, the harder death is. Isn't it? We don't think about death much when we're seven or ten. When we reach 70, we think about it a lot, don't we? As a matter of fact, when you start to hit my age, 40, you start thinking of things that you might want to do and might never get to if you don't make up your mind to do it. You see, death is before us. But perhaps the most painful thing about death is that death is unnatural. It is not supposed to be. It is painful. It is miserable. It is not a peaceful thing. It is not something we should ignore or pretend doesn't exist. It is a sin-caused rip in the fabric of the goodness of the world. We think about death that way. It can shatter our dreams, our hopes. 
We think and we look at our littlest among us and we think someday they will die. Someday I'm going to die. What hope is there? Some hope in vanity. You could be like Walt Disney and stick yourself in a freezer and hope that later on they'll conquer death for you. You can be someone who says, cut my head off and put my brain in a jar and maybe they'll learn how to make me think outside of my body. You can come up with all sorts of fanciful solutions, but there's only one solution for death. There is only one who has conquered death. There are two others who have escaped death, but only one has conquered death. You see, there is hope in the midst of death because there is hope in the defeat of death by the Lord himself. We cannot escape death. There is no solution. We cannot ignore it. How many of you would go and drive your car for 5,000 miles with the engine light blinking? And when someone said, aren't you concerned? You said, no, if I ignore that light, nothing will happen to the engine at all. I haven't put oil in this car in, oh, six months. Yet, that's often how we look at the world. We ignore reality. It's no solution to pretend death doesn't exist. What we need is a break in the chain of death. And this genealogy shows us that God intervenes and breaks the chain of death. For as certain as, and he died, and he died, and he died, occurs. Look with me at verse 22. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God, verse 24, and he was not. Why was he not? Did he disappear? Was he a magician? No, he was not. For God took him. You see, God breaks the chain of death and misery. God stoops down and scoops us up and takes us to a place of life. The psalmist understood this. In Psalm 49, 15, he takes the same language that's used here and applies it to us. He says, God will ransom my soul from the power of the grave, for he will receive me. He will take me. God doesn't just take Enoch. He takes everyone for whom the power of death is broken by the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who by faith embraces Jesus Christ as his only hope in the days of death and suffering and misery, God breaks through and he lifts us up to himself. God has this power. He shows it here with Enoch. He will show it later in the Old Testament with Elijah. He will show that death does not bind God. You see, we are tempted to think this way. Have you ever heard someone pose to you what they think is a very deep riddle? Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? You see, what underlines that is that God is somehow bound by his creation. And if we think about it in terms of death, we think somehow Adam has messed up God must start all over, otherwise we're all lost because, you know, death follows life. And what can God do? How can he possibly fix this? There's no whiteout big enough to cover this sin. 
There's no WD-40 plentiful enough to cover this squeak. What do you do? You see, God says, I am the master of death. I am the master of creation. And he breaks into history. And he declares victory over death. And where he has done that most vociferously is in the work of Jesus Christ. You see, God didn't wish death away. God didn't pretend death doesn't exist. The pain and the suffering and the longing and the hurt of death did not go away, but Jesus Christ bore it for His people. You don't need to fear death if you are in Jesus Christ today because the pain and the sting of death have already been felt. That doesn't wait for you. Jesus has already borne it. It is finished, He said. There is no more dying for you. For the Christian, dying is not like it is for others. It is a passage to life. It is a passage to hope. It is a passage to Jesus. You see, in Jesus Christ, we hear the Father's voice calling us to be with Him, to be His children. In Jesus Christ, we see the Father's love Preparing for us a mansion and providing for all of our lack. Every place we disobeyed, atonement is made. Every place we fail to obey, it is done by Jesus. You see, Jesus Christ gives victory over death. That's why the resurrection is essential. You see, Jesus paid The penalty for death and sin on the cross. That was finished. But it was in the resurrection that God shouts like a megaphone that Jesus was, is sufficient. The resurrection proves that Jesus Christ is God. It declares that He has power, that He is not a mere man, that He can actually atone for sin. The resurrection is the glorious declaration that what God has planned from the days of Genesis has been fulfilled. Is that how you see Easter morning? The culmination of the grand scheme of redemption and the work of Jesus Christ. Or is it a day to dress up and eat chocolate? Not that there's anything wrong with chocolate. But you see, the resurrection is so much more. It's one of the reasons why I want to challenge you. The resurrection is not just for Easter. This Lord's Day is just like the other 51. Every Lord's Day we gather together to remember and celebrate and take comfort from the fact that our Savior is risen. He's not up on the cross. He's at the right hand of the Father and He ever lives to intercede for us. And we have hope because of that. Because of what Jesus has done. Because you see, there is also a fellowship that extends beyond death because of what Jesus has done. We see this in the life of Enoch. You see, the resurrection is about more than just not dying. Jesus rose from the grave that we might live. 
that we might live lives of abundance and fullness and fellowship with the Lord. Enoch was taken because he walked with God. And he walks with God. Do you see that? The reason why Enoch was taken was because he walked with God. He had an intimacy with God. Now, notice what it doesn't say about Enoch. It doesn't say he thought about God. It doesn't say he talked about God. It doesn't say he read about God. It says he walked with God. His whole life was one of fellowship with the Lord. That was his whole purpose in life, was to be with God, to learn more about God, to please God. So much so that the author of the Hebrews writes in chapter 11, verse 5, in that great panoply of faith, he said, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was taken and he was commended that he had pleased God. You see, there is a requirement for life in Jesus Christ. And that requirement is to please God. And the only way that we can please God is to believe in His promises. To believe in the one that He has sent. To be justified. And to follow after Him. Enoch knew this. For Jude writes that Enoch prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness. Enoch knew a day was coming of judgment. He knew Jesus was coming again. He knew he had to be reconciled with God. He had to be right with God. He looked around him and he saw death everywhere and he knew that there was judgment to come to follow death. And the only thing he could do was to find a way to be right with God. And the only way God's word tells us that we can do that is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Paul believed God and his entire life was changed. Peter believed God and he was turned from a sniveling coward into a bold proclaimer of the gospel. Jesus can change you too. Dare you to walk with God, to follow after Him, to be like Him, to know that someday God will make you in the image of your elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. You must have this hope. It's hard. But remember, the hardest part is already done. The hardest part was being translated from death to life. The hardest part was taking a heart of stone and making it a heart of flesh. The hardest part of life has already been done for you, handed to you on a silver platter, as it were. Faith just receives it and then in gratitude walks with the Lord for joy and fulfillment. Real life begins, beloved, With believing. Not believing just in the resurrection. Real life begins in believing on Jesus. Believing His claims as to who He was. His work and what He had done. 
This morning, this Easter morning, it is time for you to believe. To believe like you have never believed before. To walk with the Lord, to run after Him, to desire to be with Him with every fiber of your being. Because you see, that's the whole purpose of the resurrection. It is the capstone of Jesus Christ coming to take for Himself a people. That is our great hope. Not just that we won't die. Not just that we will rise again, but that we will rise again to be with our Lord. There is nothing better to be imagined. That is the great hope of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have worked through your people throughout the ages. Lord, we thank you that you have given us hope even in the story of Enoch. And we pray, O Lord, that we too would seek to walk with you. That we would believe you that you have conquered death. That we would trust you with all that we are and all that we have. Lord, be with us. God, comfort us. Point us toward the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in His name that we pray. Amen.